Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. On this program, we read books written by local writers and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is Listen Local, Think Global. This is season three of Watershed Writers, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. We are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo and to have come under the wing of Matt Rapolt, who keeps things running, along with many other people, at Midtown. We record on the traditional territories of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds who live and work right here in the Grand River region. Our guest on this episode of Watershed Writers is the writer and retired epidemiologist and veterinarian, David Waltner Taves. David is the author of 14, that's right, 14 books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, and he's got more on the way. David is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Population Medicine at the University of Guelph, and he is also the founding president of the Canadian branch of Veterinarians Without Borders, Veterinaires Sans Frontières. David is known for his initiatives to integrate human, animal, and ecosystem health in research and practice. And he's also known for bridging the natural sciences, humanities, and social sciences. We can see some of that bridge building in his work in various genres of writing. He's published six books of poetry, a collection of recipes and dramatic monologues, a book of short stories, two novels, and several books of popular science. These books include On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases from Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus, a very timely topic, Sex and Salmonella, Why Our Food is Making Us Sick, and my very favorite title of his, The Origin of Theses what excrement tells us about evolution, ecology, and a sustainable society. His nonfiction has won awards in the United States and in Canada, and has been translated into French, Japanese, Chinese, and Arabic. And in addition, David was appointed to the Order of Canada in 2022. Harry Van de Vlist in Quill and Choir notes that, and I quote, Waltner Taves' poetic voice unites a working knowledge of human triumphs and debacles with a chastened yet ultimately hopeful perspective on the planet's, if not humanity's, future. David's latest book brings his global research back home. A Conspiracy of Chickens is a memoir about raising chickens in his backyard in Kitchener, Ontario, newly published by the excellent folks at Woolsack and Wynn. Welcome, David Waltner-Taves, to Watershed Writers. Hi, I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you, and, and I have been wanting to talk to you about writing poetry and about, of course, about writing nonfictions, because we are here to talk about A Conspiracy of Chickens, your new memoir that is just out with Woolsack and Wynn. But first, I, I want to 
warm up to that by uh, asking you a, a little bit about your background, what you do when you're not being a backyard uh, chicken caretaker. I know that you have had a long career as a veterinarian and of course as a, a, an academic as well. I started off studying uh, liberal arts, University of Manitoba. When I finished that year, my parents left home, which is usually the opposite of what happens when you're 19. And so I hiked around the world for a year and a half. I was just going to go to Europe, but I just kept going. Ended up back in Vancouver, worked in a sawmill, and then went back and studied arts again and graduated and realized I was either going to be a very poor poet living in a garret, or I would have to find some other way to make a living. Since I traveled around the world and I realized I couldn't learn every language, animals talk the same language basically around the world. I spent one year working in layout and design at a publisher and got bored stiff and then uh, switched completely and went into sciences. The first person in my family ever to do that and then went into veterinary medicine and practiced for two years, never had time to write which is kind of what I wanted to do. And, and then I went back and I wanted to be a generalist, like some veterinarians become dog or cat specialists or horses and so on. I wanted to be a generalist and then graduate area, the two areas that are possible, one is epidemiology and the other is comparative pathology. So looking at dead animals or looking at patterns <laughs> in populations. And I decided to go with epidemiology, partly because it meant I could be outside more, but it also meant I didn't get a motion sick looking through a microscope in a laboratory and smelling formaldehyde all day. And then worked as an epidemiologist in there. We had gotten married and we had two children and we went to Indonesia for two years. And then I came back to Guelph, to the vet school, and I taught epidemiology and I focused on the epidemiology of food and waterborne diseases and zoonotic diseases. My PhD was on dairy cows, dairy calves, and I visited 100 dairy farms all over Ontario, which I loved. Uh, but they needed somebody to teach about these diseases people get from animals. We weren't aware of very many when I started. And by the time I retired, it was overwhelming. And I thought, well, I'll just pass it on to somebody else to, to try to deal with my former students. And then along the way, I kept writing. When I was in veterinary school, I got a Canada Council grant for writing short stories, which eventually became uh, One Foot in Heaven, I think it ended up being called. And then I wrote columns for what was originally Harrowsmith magazine, where Wayne Grady was one of the editors and got to know each other that way. And then the two nonfiction books, the initial ones, well, one of them was Essays from Harrowsmith. It was uh, One Animal Among Many. Another one was called Food, Sex, and Salmonella, which is actually a spinoff from my lectures in the Epidemiology of Foodborne Disease course. The Chickens Fight Back was a spinoff from my course on Epidemiology of Zoonoses. I always worked in my personal experiences with those. The thing is, with a science paper, there's this illusion that science is being done neutrally. It was done this and this was done, but in fact, it's real people doing real things. It was at least initially very difficult to get that published, that mixing in whoever was doing it. So that's where the books came from. I took the science and then I said, well, this is how it came about. This is the kind of research we were doing and so on. So my science books have all been 
quasi-memoirs. And in a sense, the conspiracy of chickens is somewhat in that vein, although it's oriented differently. And I know that the Chickens Fight Back actually had a quite a second life when uh, pandemic restrictions came into into being because yeah. you were talking about diseases that, that uh, were passed from animals to, to humans. Is that right? Right, right. They wanted a, an update. I ended up rewriting large parts of the book because my own understanding had changed in the decades since the first one had been written. Um, and so it was called On Pandemics. I had shifted from looking at these diseases as as one would in a veterinary school, this is what you can get from dogs, this is what you can get from birds, chickens, horses, blah, 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 to looking at what are the ecological and social circumstances from which these diseases emerge. Now, they might come from a specific animal, but they circulate around to various other animals and they get to us. So it's not the focus on, like a veterinary focus on, this is what you should do with your dog, it was more, these are the kinds of landscapes and ecologies and social relations from which these diseases emerge, whatever the animal is. I want to talk about your poetry in a minute, but mm -hmm. um, I can't uh, leave thinking about the, the science memoirs or the science reflected mm -hmm. memoirs without mentioning that you have what is really a, a favorite title of mine, and it is your work on excrement, and it is called The Origin of feces. Yes, the origin <laughs> of feces. It was a, a strange book in some ways because I was writing it as I was retiring and I thought there's one piece that was missing in terms of teaching of the epidemiology because a lot of these diseases were transmitted through feces in the water on the land and so on. Where did feces come from? You know, evolutionarily, I mean, it's always kind of been there. Why is that a problem now? Those kinds of things. And the odd thing is I had an, an agent and I had a publisher committed. And the publisher dropped it because they wanted me to write something other than what I had understood was in the contract. And then the agent said, I can't market a book about poop shit. I was left with this manuscript that I didn't know what to do with. Jack David at ECW had been on my case for years to write something. So I sent him the manuscript. He said, okay. And we ended up changing the title and changing some of the chapters. I had done all the research. I had gotten a Canada Council grant to write it during the years when there was a conservative government. It's like, don't tell the politicians I've got a Canada Council write grant to write a book about poop. I mean, this is sort of the worst possible use of our taxpayer dollars. But I, I got a book out of it, and it was actually my best, most popular book. Partly the title, you know, it's. <laughs> it is a great title. <laughs> Okay. Everything that you've um, you've been talking about here about the this blend of science writing and creative nonfiction and how they really do support each other as opposed to exist in these two different realms. I note that for a review of the Chickens Fight Back in the Globe and Mail, you are praised thusly. David Waltner Taves is a rare flower, a poet, philosopher, and scientist with an ancient Scheherazade's talents at storytelling and a scholar's knowledge of myth and history. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Who is that person? <laughs> What's your reaction when you read something like this about yourself? Well, it's a little bit embarrassed. It was like, you got it. Because in, in a university setting, you're pigeonholed into a box. I remember when I retired, one of the vets 
told me, he says, oh, you're going to do this work with Vets Without Borders. That's tremendous. And I said, well, I want to do a lot of writing. And he said, yeah, it's really good to have a hobby. Writing was my focus. And and that you were involved with Veterinarians Without Borders. In fact, I think you co-founded, is that right? Uh, Vets Without Borders in Canada, Physicians Without Borders, which had a central office in Paris and then sent up branches elsewhere with Vets Without Borders. There's a lot of independence among vets. I mean, because there hasn't been public insurance uh, and things like that. And so there was a, a group in Germany, a group in uh, Belgium, uh, Spain, a few other places. And they all had different names. There was Tierarzt ohne Grenzen in Germany and Vessanias uh, Frontier in Belgium. And the French had a slightly different version. And at one point, I was called up by uh, somebody from Aeroplan, and they said, is there a a Vets Without Borders in Canada? I said, I know, if there there isn't, there should be. They were supporting Engineers Without Borders and a various uh, Médecins Sans Frontières and other groups, and they wanted to support a Canadian veterinary group. I was doing a lot of international work all through my university career, I had projects going in, you know, in East Africa and in Nepal and in South America. We started one, and uh, I was the first president of it, and we had a council. We got points from Aeroplan, and then I went to the Canadian government, and I knew the chief veterinary officer. And timing is everything, right? We were really concerned about avian influenza bird flu. It was going to destroy. This was 2004 or five in there. And there was sort of a panic. I said, well, as an epidemiologist, my take would be if you want to protect Canadian agriculture, because the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which is where the, the chief veterinary officer is seated, their, their responsibility is Canadian. I said, if, if you want to protect the Canadian poultry industry, we have to stop the epidemic where it starts, and it starts in Southeast Asia. So we got a bunch of money from the Canadian branch of protecting Canadian poultry to work in Southeast Asia. So it was a combination of aeroplan and things. And that then opened up possibilities that were not there earlier when I was just doing research with partners in other countries, because they were research projects. So this opened up to doing a lot of different things. Um, And it was a kind of natural progression from me to go from being this researcher and trying to fill out my CV and get get points for it and all these kinds of things, to saying, we can do this international work, we can get partners, we can do all kinds of things and diversify. And it doesn't ha- it doesn't matter whether it's on a CV or not. Right? You can, so that was that was actually a natural kind of progression to do that. The Canadian group, we we went to Europe and we joined up with the Europeans. And so now there's a, a, a VSF International, and we're part of that. And you're still working with them, is that right? I'm in an advisory capacity. I do a little bit, but I realized at some point I was uh, micromanaging. And one of my uh, graduate students told me, she said, you know, one of the number one reasons for the failure of non-government organizations is if it's begun with a charismatic leader. I've never thought of myself that way, but if it's started by somebody who's got a certain vision and then they leave, then it collapses. So I kind of eased myself out. I stepped away from being president and then I eventually stepped off the board entirely and I give advice once in a while. More recently, there have been 
issues with regard to the wildlife trade, trying to influence politicians about that uh, regarding pandemics and things like that. And also, most recently, is uh, animal welfare in wartime. It, oh. you know, how, what do you do with that? What do you yeah. do with dogs and cats and horses and cows in Ukraine? Right. You know, it's on the one hand, people want to focus on people quite rightly. On the other hand, people stay in war zones sometimes because they don't want to leave a dog, right? But what do you do with that? Or a herd of cattle, right? Which is, yes. you know, their... somebody's livelihoods. It's yeah. uh, like in the, in the Fraser Valley when the floods came through, you know, they actually sent in the army to rescue chickens and cows and stuff. Now, one of the things I really liked about the conspiracy of chickens, and I'm going to steer us towards uh, that. The way I understood uh, your writing about chickens as both extremely local, as mm -hmm. in your backyard chickens, mm -hmm. and also as a kind of an international chicken, right? Uh, the idea that chickens, different kinds of chickens do better in different kinds of environments, and right. that it was, it's never just thinking about one chicken, but thinking about the needs of, of many. Uh, chickens all over and they're localized, of course, according to who is caring for them. But I liked that idea of a world of chickens, global mm -hmm. chickens being discussed in, in the book that links up with what we were saying about uh, about thinking about the avian flu and uh, veterinarians without borders. One of the arguments I have to keep pushing back on is this notion that there is a global chicken because it homogenizes it. It makes it a kind of a, you know, all chickens are the same. And I ran into this working with avian influenza in Southeast Asia and going to a market in Thailand. And there was a woman selling free range village chickens and uh, commercial birds. The World Health Organization would say, you should just focus on the commercial birds. And she was saying, I get way more money per kilogram for the village chickens running around. So the economic incentive was one way and the public health rules were the other way. And that's not often recognized. And on top of that, the global chicken tends to be, uh, it's a monoculture. It's a certain kind of chicken genetically fine-tuned to grow in certain ranges of temperature, of air quality, of very finely tuned food, all computer controlled. And then it gets exported all over the world. And in fact, it kind of stomps on local cultures and the varieties of other chickens that are out there that are adapted for a variety of reasons. The notion of let's call them multi-purpose animals, cows that provide milk and pull plows and, and our modes of transport. Well, that, we don't do that. And when we export our agriculture, we tend to homogenize everything. So to me, it's part of cultural diversity and biodiversity and those kinds of things. So it's trying to discover that and then looking at the history in Southeast Asia. And I talk about that a bit in the book where, you know, they came from the wild jungle fowl, which I've seen. They were originally bred to be fighting cocks, not to be eaten. And then they went to India and they were used for religious purposes. And the Romans used them to, for augers, you know, the chickens, ate your food that you gave them, you were going to have victory. If they didn't eat, then you were going to lose the, the battle and you would better wait a few days. And it wasn't until later that they actually became something of a source of food for us, or more dominant. It really wasn't until the 20th century we figured out how, we didn't even know what vitamins were before that, but 
animals, including ourselves, need vitamin D, which technically isn't a vitamin, it's a hormone, but you need sunlight to activate it. And it wasn't until the 40s and 50s that we, meaning the science technology people, figured out you need to have this vitamin D and you either need to have sunshine or you need to be able to manufacture it. And they figured out how to manufacture it. So from the 70s and 80s onward, you had these massive chicken farms where they were inside. They didn't need the sunshine. So they were bred for that. So that kind of creates a, a global chicken, which doesn't exist in the wild. They run around, they get sunshine, they go up on roosts at night. I had a grad student who worked on chickens in Honduras. And I noticed when I went to visit during the daytime, the chickens were out foraging. At night, they would go up into the trees. If you think about it, you know, they're getting away from predators. So there's a genetically bred to do that. Well, chickens in a barn don't have roosts to get up on. So there's a natural sort of evolutionary reason why they would do that. But we try to breed that out of them so we can, they don't need roosts because there aren't weasels and foxes and things like that. Well, there are, but try to keep them out of the barns. <laughs> Indeed. So if the Chickens Fight Back was one kind of pandemic book, mm -hmm. right, looking mm -hmm. at, at diseases, I would say that A Conspiracy of Chickens is mm -hmm. another different kind of pandemic book, yes. one that is inflected by how we think about our parameters of home and creatureliness and care and yes. how that has shifted for many people uh, during pandemic restrictions. So what kind of reactions have you been getting to a conspiracy of chickens? I had a lot of reactions when I was writing the blog because I started blogging as I was raising these chickens. You know, my wife gave me seven chickens for my 70th birthday and people said, oh, have you always wanted chickens? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> My wife wanted me to get out of the house, quit staring at a computer screen, quit just, you know, writing. That's good, but you need to get outside some. So then I had to figure out how to build a chicken coop and what kind of protection do they need? What kind of food do they eat? And it became a focus on learning how to live in this place with these animals and what do they die from? What's a pecking order? How does that work? I was used to thinking in epidemiologic terms where you've got thousands of chickens or thousands of farms and you look at patterns of disease. This is like you've got chickens with individual characters and uh, you know they're dominant ones and what's at the bottom of the pecking order and how do you manage, you know, do you manage that or do you just let them try to kill each other until somebody's dominant? You know, it look, can look pretty brutal. Commercial barns, they don't worry about predators so much because they're all sealed and all this kind of thing. But here I, you know, okay, we'll build a chicken coop and a run outside, which is really solid and it's going to keep the foxes out and, and the raccoons and other animals that might come in. And then uh, realize that in, in fact, in this area and in the Grand River Valley, we actually have red-tailed hawks and goshawks. And so, I mean, the predators aren't going to come in from the side. They could, but, you know, we lost one of the chickens to a a hawk that flew over and it just mm. uh, came down, dropped down, picked it up and they go like, okay, well, you know, if you're a chicken, that might be an okay way to die very suddenly. You bang like that, you've got a good life, you're running around outside and then you're dead. I also started thinking about local ecology and we're an invasive species. What does it mean our home on native land, as was recently said? How do we begin to grapple with those kinds of things? And 
the notion that these individual animals of all sorts have personalities. You know, we anthropomorphize is what scientists are told not to do. On the other hand, we're told we share 60 to 75 percent of our genetics with chickens, even much higher with mammals. How much of that is anthropomorphizing and how much of that is just recognizing a kind of a, a mutually shared genetic heritage? What does that even mean? You note that it's there's something karmic about raising these backyard chickens, right? You're <laughs> right. right. They have personalities. You've named them after women in, in your family, which is another way of, of course, distinguishing them, right? Um, and thinking of them as, as individuals. And I'm really struck by this idea of you had to shift from thinking of hundreds of animals to thinking of seven. And actually pretending that they were four because the legal limit in Kitchener is four. Oops. So <laughs> it, my wife never checked this out before she bought. She figured 70th birthday, we'll get seven chickens. So when the inspector came by, and he did, I had to hide three of them in the garage and talk very loudly so that they couldn't be hurt. <laughs> and it, I mean, one of the things about these laws is they're good in the sense that they're trying to not just anybody can have any number of chickens in the city, which I don't right. think is a good thing. It's like, well, you can have as many dogs as you want running around. Well, no. There are certain rules around that, but we've got a huge backyard. It's like it had a clay tennis court back there until we grassed it over. Really, from a welfare point of view, from all of those kind of points of view, it should be number of chickens per square foot or per square mm -hmm. meter even. you know, They've got lots of room. Now they say you've got four if you've got a postage-sized yard or if you've got a tennis court back there. That doesn't make any sense to me. I figured I was ready to, you know, if I got accused of breaking the law, I would fight it. <laughs> well, you, you were ready with the argument. You're ready with the, uh, you know, with the scientific argument yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. So you'd be the one to, to make that challenge. And maybe it's still going to happen, David. Maybe it's still going to happen. <laughs> well, I'm down to three chickens now. So maybe it's, you know, there's attrition. I see. That's the other thing. They die and you, yeah. then you figure out what to do with that. We would have pets die sometimes, and I would do a post-mortem on the pet together with my children. And people say, oh, that would be so traumatizing to the kids. And I'm going, I would explain to them, we're trying to find out why this pet died. It doesn't mean we don't mourn the death. We you know, feel really sad. We figure out why it died, and then we, we bury it. Right? And we try to do something to prevent the next death from happening if it's something that's preventable. Those kinds of things... In a, in a commercial operation, you might look at a few birds and say, well, this is what's spreading because they're all the same, basically, genetically. And in a backyard where you've got a whole mixture of different kinds of birds, plus also you see the individual birds, so some of them die from this or that or something else. The chickens themselves are all named after family members, your mothers and sisters. And um, I like that you noted that there is a politics to naming these chickens. And what did you learn about the chickens in a group and the chickens as individuals by living so closely with them? And um, I'm also wondering if you learned anything about the people you named the chickens after retrospectively. We didn't want to name them after living relatives because then what if one of them died, you know, and it would be this is your sister that died or something. Right. 
you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe in that, that that's a bad omen, but you know, let's, let's just sort of be safe on this. Yeah. And, and then you have to actually say the name, you know, right. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, doing the dead female relatives and, um, you know, my mother, my mother-in-law, sister-in-law, a couple of aunts, um, all different names. And they sort of looked like the birds that we were looking at, you know, not specifically, <laughs> but there was a kind of resemblance, you know, a, a, a red bird would be named Ruby. My mother always had white hair as far as I can remember. So she was the white chicken, Nettie. But somebody had uh, wrote to me and said, you know, well, you're not going to be able to eat them now. You know, you're going to eat, you know, Winnie, your mother-in-law. And I'm going, I, I don't even want to go there, right? A friend come over and she was looking at the birds in the backyard and we were talking about the naming of them. And she said, you know, my mother in Austria, we always had chickens around. She named all of them. She took really good care of them when they were sick. You know, she would bring them into the house and give them a bath and keep them warm, all of this kind of stuff. And then when they got old, we'd chop off their heads and make soup out of them. I want to return to what you call the contract between you and the chickens, that you'll care for them and keep them healthy, nurse them when they're ill, call the contract between you and the chickens. It's a kind of recognition that the animals that we care for, there's a kind of contract there. We take care of them as best we can, keep them happy and happy and comfortable, whatever that means. And there are all debates around that. And then when the time comes for them to die for some reason, we, we make it as good as possible. I mean, the veterinarians have always kind of done this. We're getting around to it now and, you know, with MAID and so on looking at humans, but we've always kind of thought this way. And some people are a little aghast at that, but I've euthanized dogs who got really, really old and you make a house visit and they, and then you inject them and they have a good death. And to me, that makes complete sense. Even if you, it doesn't mean you don't take care of them. It doesn't mean you call them, you know, chicken number one, two, three, four, five, you recognize their individuality. You keep them as happy and comfortable as possible, whatever that means. And then if it looks like they're, you know, they're, they're going to go, then make that passage however comfortable you can make it. You're listening to Watershed Writers on Midtown Radio KW. You can find this and all of our episodes on SoundCloud and Spotify. To learn more about the authors featured on the show, please visit our website at watershedwriters, all one word, at dot ca. Now, back to our interview with David Waltner I think we are ready for uh, a, a little reading from Conspiracy of Chickens. Okay. And have, do you have a passage that you've chosen? I was going to read the right at the beginning, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, Sanity and the Little Red Hen. All right. Yesterday at dusk, my wife went out to close our small flock of backyard hens into their luxury condo coop on wheels, called by chicken fanciers for some peculiar reason, a tractor. They would usually have retreated into the run by sunset, then headed up the ramp and into the coop, where they would be found comfortably resting on their roosts, perfectly constructed to maximize Gallic comfort. But this time they ran across the yard toward her, talking excitedly, explaining some ineffable misery. 
some reason why they wouldn't go into the coop. So my wife came back to the house. You can't force a chicken to seek shelter. They have to want to seek shelter. I suppressed the niggling fear that some other animal, a rat or a raccoon or a skunk had decided they had squatters rights in the condo. The hens were probably just celebrating some special chicken moon thing. We thought we'd wait and try again later. This happened a few times until well after dark, we decided that seriously enough was enough. We went out with flashlights prepared to scold them into submission. And I found that the gate to the run had been swung shut by the wind. The whole flock was huddled miserably half asleep next to some straw bales under the coop. We didn't want to leave them there in case foxes in the area might sniff them out and call their friends. There's an all you can eat chicken buffet over here. We turned the lights on in the run and the coop and crawling on my belly, I poked and prodded them with a long handled leaf rake and then pulled them complaining out of their improvised shelter. They grumbled as any of us would, dragged from bed in the middle of the night. A few of them panicked, help, help, and ran off in various directions into the darkness, noisily circling the yard like border collies. Where are the flocking chicken dogs when you need them? We corralled and encouraged them back into the run and from the run up the ramp through the hatch into the coop. Only one resisted our encouragements, Katie, also known as the little red hen. She ran and skittered and squawked all over the yard with me running closely behind, waving my rake. I scratched my face on the sharp branch, trying to get her out from under the juniper bush. She retreated into the shrubs and piles of pruned tree branches. I threw the rake over the top of the bush to scare her my way, but she squawked terrified and ran past me to the shrubbery on the other side of the yard, 30 meters away. After we had chased each other wildly around the yard a few times, I finally trapped her in a dark corner, shone a light into her eyes, pressed her up between a large tree stump and the fence, and grabbed her by the legs. Dangling from my head, okay, maybe I was squeezing just a little too tightly, but I was mad. As I walked across the dark yard, she writhed and screamed bloody murder. Help, help, he's going to slaughter me, help, help. The thought of chicken and dumplings did cross my mind, but slaughtering at home was against the local bylaw, and I was already pushing the letter of that law in other ways. The lights went on in the 20-story apartment block overlooking our yard. I wondered what the apartment dwellers were imagining. Someone living there had once called the police on us, and an officer had come by to investigate why I was torturing my dog. I have never owned a dog, but the policeman took some convincing as the person who had reported me claimed they had seen or at least heard me engaged in this nefarious pet abusing business. Had I finally killed my dog and was now using lax city bylaws to torture my hens? In my head, in harmony with Katie, I was howling Old Testament lament. What is this about? Why am I here? Am I practicing this oompa chicken dance for Oktoberfest? Is this sustainable urban agriculture, the Green New Deal, my just reward for years of academic careerism? Am I trying to prove something? Is there a God? The next morning at dawn, I asked the chickens if they'd had bad dreams, but they just wanted their morning kitchen scraps. Everything was apparently forgotten.
maybe Friedrich Nietzsche, who claimed that non-human animals lived entirely in the moment that they suffered neither melancholy nor weariness and were therefore happy, was right, at least in this one observation. If one says a lot of contradictory things, as do all great philosophers, you are bound to be right sometimes. After all, I'd once suggested that raising hens in an urban backyard might be a terrific idea. <laughs> and I had written letters in support of other you know, groups that were uh, arguing for chickens in the backyard. Um, this was before I had my own chickens. <laughs> right, right, right. I, you know, that everyday uh, problem solving and uh, uh, the practicalities of living with chickens, I think, is the is one of the most enjoyable parts of this book for me. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it's it's about problems that you don't know are going to arise because right. the chickens are who the chickens are, right? And and things happen, right? Apparently, <laughs> right? Um, and they're living beings. And that idea of the the hawks, of course, I, I had not been thinking about that at all. Right. And there was one season where we had a whole ring of black walnut trees in the backyard and they massed. So some years there's no black walnuts and some years there are several tons, it seems like. It was one year, it seemed like I viewed it as the trees attacking the chickens because the chickens were out there and suddenly these black walnuts would come flying down and they would, chickens would scream and run from the bushes. <laughs> So it was, from one point of view, it was kind of funny. Another it was like, okay, the black walnut, and you can't do anything to protect chickens from black walnut trees. And when you put them under a roof, I guess. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The sky indeed. is falling. Yeah. Now, I am interested in the fact that this began as a blog, and then you changed it into a book, and you've had lots of uh, experience writing short things like columns mm -hmm. or a blog, and then, um, and then bookifying them. Tell me, what's the difference between writing for a blog and then changing it into a memoir? I hadn't intended to. So I kept the blog and I kept, you know, things I was writing along the way. I tried out some publishers and they sort of looked at it and it, it was kind of messy. You know, it was because it's whatever topic happened to come up. It's like this, you know, the chickens in the backyard and those kind of things. And people would read that and they think it was just hilarious. And I'd put in some pictures and I initially put something together. It was kind of cobbled together. I ended up self-publishing. It was called the Interpandemic Backyard Chicken Book or something like that. I was in the middle of the pandemic and WHO has pandemic models for flu and there is no non-pandemic phase. And I have to keep reminding people of that. There's the different stages of the pandemic and then there's an interpandemic period and then there's the next pandemic, right? So we're, we might be in an interpandemic of some sort. So that was that. And then I started trying to, well, how can I make this into a book? And I had to create some logic to it in terms of the experience. And then I spent a lot of time thinking about there's the direct experience, there's the ecology and there's the history. And then there's this other part uh, where chickens were a retirement thing, you know? And now people have got chickens as a hedge against inflation for eggs, right? Then mm -hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an article in New York Times that said that people were, a lot of people were buying chickens and they do that in times of stress, apparently. So the political chaos in the US and the pandemic was coming on, but people were buying chickens. So there's that part of it. And I come around at the end because I'd written an article about, you know, what people like me should be doing in our retirement and how, what makes 
older people happy. And he used examples that I didn't think were relevant, but it was an article in the Atlantic. And so I kind of reframed it as, you know, raising chickens. How did that relate to my retirement? So I had to restructure the blog. I had originally written it as over one year, but in fact, now I've had the chickens for four and a half years. And by the time I put the book together, it was four years. So I condensed it more made it like one year, sort of a year of living dangerously or whatever, and conflated some of the years because some of the more interesting things happened when the chickens were a bit older, right? And so that wouldn't be necessarily the first year. There were some interesting things when they're baby chicks and you're building these things, but then there are some things that happen later. The things were true in a, in a factual sense, in a historic sense, I suppose, but they were restructured so that it looked like it was one year. So there was more seasonally. So this kind of things happen in the fall and these kind of things happen in the winter and then spring. And then kind of tease out some of the more, you know, the history of chickens or the physical structure, why they walk the way they do or how they breathe and kind of things they eat, those sorts of things. So it took a fair amount of rewriting and restructuring and I know one of the reactions I've gotten even to the book is that it still has a bit of a cobbled together feeling, you know, other than starting to write all over again. But then I think it loses its edge. It's uh, it's like if I get a poem and I revise it too many times, it's technically better and it's a lousy poem because it's hmm. just the only thing it is is technically better, but it loses that rough edge the excitement of it, the energy of it. So it didn't have an overarching theme, if you want. How do we deal with pandemics? Or how do we deal with foodborne disease? Or this is like a mixture of things. You know, I think that says more about the expectations of uh, a reader, you know, saying mm. that this doesn't read like like a novel, right? It doesn't have that kind right. of narrative. And indeed, it doesn't, be, and nor, sh nor should it, quite frankly, right? You know, I was thinking, what kind of a book is it? And I had originally thought, well, it's a kind of retirement memoir, but it's not a memoir in the sense of, you know, memoirs have been really popular in the last decade, yes. probably. A yeah. lot of the memoirs are people who've been traumatized as children and then risen above that, gone on to through healing and those kind of things. Well, it's not that sort of a thing. I didn't have a traumatic childhood, so I wasn't going to go there. What kind of a memoir? Well, it's things that I remember related to chickens, really. And a few other things and how I tie them together. So it's uh, a memoir in that sense. It's not an autobiography, certainly. And it's not a memoir more generally about my life. It's focused on my memories and experiences with these chickens and how that relates to the world at large. Now, you mentioned uh, a poem, you men mentioned poetry a couple of minutes ago, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I warned you, we were going to get around to the poetry. Yes. I really liked the fact that you uh, included uh, a couple of poems in, in here. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work, but... No, that's true. Um, okay. But, but you know, um, I mean, just in general, when you add uh, poetry to a prose thing? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, t I'm seeing more and more work that is hybrid like that. And I think like once you get outside of North America, there's a much larger tradition of including poetry in, in, prose, uh, in prose work. So I was glad to see it here. I would love for you to read one of the poems. And mm -hmm. I'm going to leave that uh, up to you, which okay. one. 
Um, I know one is written in uh, your sometime poetic persona of Tante Tina, right. who I love. I love Tante Tina. And of course, then the other one is um, yes, uh, I, an I ode I, to a particular animal. So, And, and I, I was going to do the second one, because Tante Tina is something else. She is. <laughs> I'm gonna put she on sure a... is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I have to start, like, speaking with a low German accent, and that is a whole different thing, you know. Okay, it's, so we'll go with the second one. Okay. Uh, just to put it in context, I was doing a lot of work in Southeast Asia on, on avian influenza, and I was in Indonesia, in Java, and there was one village. It was in the middle of an area where there was a lot of avian influenza, and they claimed they didn't have any. And I thought, okay, well, let's go visit there. We'll have a little workshop. We'll talk to people. And we asked, do you have any sick birds? And they, yeah, we sometimes have sick birds. Or what happens? And well, we throw them in the river out back, you know. So they don't have avian influenza. You know, if they have avian influenza, then the government would come in and they would kill the birds and give them market value for the birds. I said, well, can we go out and look at the chickens that you've got? I wanted to see how healthy they were and so on. And they did. And it turned out they have competitive singing roosters worth thousands of US dollars. And they would, before the pandemic, travel all over Southeast Asia where they would have competitions. Competitive singing rooster. I'd heard about cockfights and so on, but I hadn't heard about the singing roosters. In fact, it triggered a memory that I had, in fact, in the mid 80s when we lived in Indonesia, seen them, but it didn't click because I wasn't in that mind frame. And then I was thinking, okay, so they've got these beautiful birds. You know, I'd use the comparison of Cesaria Avora, that kind of lounge singing. I never heard a rooster sing like that. It was actually quite wonderful. And then I thought, we come in with these ideas of this is what a chicken is. We talked earlier about kind of a global chicken. Well, here's a chicken that's not a global chicken. And I thought, this is something that not as a disease epidemiologist, but as a human being in terms of interest in diversity and ecology, these are worth keeping for a whole range of other reasons. And so then I wrote this poem, a love song for a Javanese singing cock. It's what they call them. I am Pulung. I am Pulung, singing cock, crooning rooster, barely emerged from the jungle. You are my song, the low throaty blues of my heart. You pause amid the children and the scattered corn, the old man with the clove scented kretek, grinning in a blue cloud of smoke. You raise your vermilion comb, cock your head and stretch out your long dark neck. You are the voice of the wild pheasant in the city, the throaty soul of this foul city, my heart. Lean out the feathery snake of your neck for me. Let me stroke the gloss of your feathers, green and flaming and black as char. Let me hold your angular body in my arms. Feel the light nubbles of bone slip under the skin, the heart pounding fearfully and fiercely under the bones. Oh, my handsome one, my rooster, let us croon together the lament of the KFC bucket, of Swiss chalet, of chicken fingers, of how the once proud jungle fowl are fallen. How far, how very far. Let us sing like Cesaria Avora, like Sachmo, like Bizet's pearl fishers. Fly for me, let us go fly fishing for fireflies in the sun-glossed mirrored lake of the rice paddy. Let us scrabble in the wilderness for joy. Burst from my arms. Wait for me in the arms of the mango tree. Wait until the bird flu police are gone. 
You are a flower among the dark leaves, my love. You are the song of the tree. You are jasmine tea in the afternoon of our leave taking. Loosen your tongue with honey and clove. Loosen the tumbling monsoon clouds. Loosen the march of seasons and good sense. Make us young, strutting long-necked through the swirl of muddy streets. Lift us with your song. Lift us above the rivers of dead fowl, the grasping flood of shopkeepers. Settle us in the crown of a cassava grove, gently lilting, swaying, singing. Let us never stop singing. So that was my love song to a Javanese singing cock. I love that. I love that. And, and of course, that that end, you know, let us never uh, stop singing reminds me of you singing to the uh, your own chickens, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially because sometimes you sing, how can I keep from singing, which is a personal exactly, favorite yeah. of mine. And you had quite a repertoire that you would sing to the chickens. Yeah, and there was some of them were songs I used to sing to my own kids, you know, Raffy songs and mm -hmm. some Bob Dylan and things like that. And, you know, they they would gather along the fence and look at me and kind of sit there and listen. And then when I was done, they would wander off. I, I have no idea what was going on in those chicken brains, but I think it was just, okay, here's a friendly voice. They bring us food, give us shelter. Oh, we can listen to this for a little bit. But they would listen to you singing as opposed to speaking. Do you think there was something, you know, in the melody or in the, right. the changes in, in cadence that would yeah. uh, attract them? I don't know what, <laughs> but they, it is. They do respond differently. When I go out and bring them kitchen scraps in the morning or when they're out in the yard in the summertime and I come and I'm, I, you know, I sing, you know, baby beluga or something like this. And they respond to that singing voice. And I don't know what it is, but there's mm. something soothing. It's not a a screech like from a hawk or an owl or something like that. It's kind of a soothing melody. We recognize each other as uh, as 60 to 75 percent genetic heritage here. And, and it happens and it happens on a melody, right? It happens on a melody. I mean, that was my point. On the one hand, we can increase food production, right? And that's the big picture. Right. On the other hand, what are we losing? And mm -hmm. do we really want to lose that sense of joy and singing in, among the, in the natural world? Are there other ways to improve our food supply that don't require giving up things that make life worth living? Yeah, you yeah. live longer if you eat this and this and this and this. But, you know, is, is that a boring life, a life without music and singing and singing roosters and chaos in the backyard? You know, I love the chaos in the backyard, and I have to say that, that personally, I uh, I laughed every time you wrote about having to chase the chickens around. Right? <laughs> Guess it just it's such a great image of this this tiny creature who can yep. move really quickly and erratically, right? We had one that was she was at the bottom of the pecking order. She knew we were trying to shelter her from the other birds. I tend to stay out of those kind of things, but they were really bullying, and they were poking at her and pecking at her and jumping at her. And one time my friends and I were sitting in the backyard drinking tea or something and having some biscuits. We were in a circle. She came running into the middle being chased by these other chickens. The other chickens didn't come in. She realized she's we're her protection. Right? It was interesting. We eventually did enough group therapy that we managed to get her. She was still at the bottom of the heap, but they weren't bullying her to death. It was like, okay, we'll let her have some food. You know, we're first. 
you know, I'm first, you're second, you're third, and you're at the bottom here, but we don't have to try to kill her. So, I mean, it's the, I mean, you know, people have soft feelings for animals, and I have a lot of empathy, and they can be pretty brutal to each other. Yeah. If we're looking at it that way, but you can see in a natural setting, who gets access to food matters. You know, oh, yeah. who, gets, who gets to breed matters. Yeah, it's huge. Um, you kind of walk that line between having empathy and singing to them and recognizing that they're not really part of our family in the same way as my kids are, right? But they're in there. It's, they're still yeah, a yeah, relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? They have yeah. their own. Yeah, it, I, yeah. I, I honor their chickenness, if you want, you know, yes. and try to yes. recognize what we have in common. Now I'm going to ask a question that is actually quite a cruel question for someone uh -oh. who just has a book out. I'm going to ask what you're working on lately. I'd like to get up in the morning and write. You know, I if I don't write, I I'd go crazy. That's, I really need to have that writing. And when I finished The Origin of Theses, people say, well, what are you going to write next? I had no idea. And then there was a big fad that came around that said, we're, we're all going to eat insects and they're going to save us. Right. It's going to, it's those, that's the, the cure for everything. And I thought, well, I, you know, as an epidemiologist, I spent a lot of my life trying to kill insects or at least control them because they transmit all these diseases. So I thought now we're trying to keep them alive so we can eat them. So again, I got a can of the council grant and I said, well, look at this because we have these conflicted relationships with insects. We have cows that feed on pastures and then we eat the cows or we milk the cows. We have locusts that feed on pastures, but then we kill them. Why don't we just eat them, you know, rather than spray poison all over them? So I spent a few years working on that. I've been working on poetry all the way along. I have a book of poems coming out this November. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It's from St. Thomas Poetry Series in Toronto. That's coming out. And then the following year, there will be, a, I was going to say new and used poems, but poems that have been previously published, plus some new ones that aren't in this year's collection. I'm always working on fiction. I remember once I was trying to get an agent and uh, for my nonfiction, and, and I said, and I've also got a novel. And they sort of said dismissively, yeah, well, every academic's got a novel in the drawer somewhere, you know. Like, wow. Okay, well, that's, that's not going to work out. But, you know, my first Canada Council grant was for writing fiction, right? That's the short fiction, which I had intended to be a novel, but I was working as a vet. I didn't have time to write a novel. So I wrote short pieces that were the same characters, but different episodes in their lives. And then I did a murder mystery, which I had a really hard time getting published. And finally, it felt like it was reluctantly published by a press called Poison Pen Press in the U.S., who published mostly U.S. authors and were republishing older mystery writers that had gone out of print, sort of famous ones. I got in, they published it, and the year it was published, 2008, it was listed by Publishers Weekly, one of the top 100 books of the year, and it was one of the top 10 mysteries published that year. And I think the publisher was a little nonplussed. The question is then, what do I do to follow up? And I've been working on various follow-ups. I've got one that I self-published, and I've got another one now, Fishing for Cambodia, that is still looking for a publisher. I've revised it. Part of that is it gets me up in the morning and keeps me writing. Okay, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do with this? So I've got uh, another mystery, but then I've got another longer book, which is sort of an alternative history, let's say. 
that brings together my whole upbringing and the international background, you know, ancestors coming from Northern Europe and going through Russia and then coming here and Manitoba. And, but it's from a totally different point of view, like not, I won't tell you what it is right now, but it's a little bit sci-fi-ish, I guess, but telling a story like that from a different point of view. And I've been working on that for a long time. And I'm working on, on nonfiction. I recently wrote an essay for, um, it's an Italian magazine called Animo, but it's looking at our genetic relationships to other animals. So I'd written one on the wisdom of pandemics, which was going right back, you know, what not technically what can we learn, but what does it tell us about ourselves, place, and how does that relate to other aspects of indigeneity? So this goes beyond all political boundaries and all that kind of stuff to say that my identity is in this place and how we look at it is through looking at the bacteria that are there, which is an interesting take on it. So I'm writing writing poetry. Do you have a recent poem you could share with us? It's called a terzanel. It's like a villanelle. It's got it's a very tightly structured rhyme scheme with repetitions. And it came about because uh, Carl Hebert, uh, a friend and an ultralight pilot, took me for a flight over the Grand River watershed. And I said, so how much does it cost? And he said, write me some poems. So it was kind of barter, which, you know, is a fun thing to do. And I wrote a series of five terzanels and a sonnet. I'll read one of the terzanels. I do not know whose woods those are. I do not care to know. We fly above them, see the fox along the trees escape into the shadows, pausing. We glide along the river's graceful turn of phrase among the stuttering landscapes, above the maples, poplars, oak, the green-roofed barns, to know we fly above them, see the fox along the trees, escape into clouds, enough. Let them stand arms akimbo, wish us good or harm, we are above all that, the truckers and the market, our heads above the maples, poplars, oak, the green-roofed farms, where farmers walk from shadows, smooth, sun-warmed wood, hitch Clydesdales to the plow. It is illusory to think we are above all that, the truckers and the market, that heads can somehow disattach from stomachs, that without bread and drink there can be dreams. My hopes for Earth's redemption yawn, hitch Clydesdales to the plow, it is illusory to think it matters more who owns the woods than that the woods are there. I do not know whose woods these are. I do not care. There can be dreams. My hopes for Earth's redemption yawn into the shadows, pausing. We glide along the river's graceful turn. It sounds to me that you're living the dream. You know, you, you retired because you wanted to write full time. And now you yeah. have these these many, many books and these many projects that you're and working I have, on. And uh, I have excellent grandchildren. But unfortunately, two of them are in Australia and two of them are in the U.S. David, I really want to thank you for being on the show and talking okay. to us about all of your work, including uh, A Conspiracy of Chickens, which is published right. by the fabulous Hamilton publishers of Woolsack and Wynn. Yes. And available wherever fine books are sold. Our yes. listeners can check out their local independent booksellers. And in the Grand River region, they are Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, Rookery Books in Cambridge, and The Bookshelf in Wealth. Thanks for joining us for this interview with the prolific David Waltner Taves. Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwritersalloneword.ca. Our next episode will feature Jessica Vitalis, 
talking about her new book for YA readers, The Rabbit's Gift. And we'll have Seth Raslett and Clarence Kachiji here in a few weeks to talk about their co-written work, North Wind Man. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. In the studio, we are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is the show's founder and producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter, Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Oh!